so this week we uh, decided that in anticipation of the coming Halloween holiday, uh, we're going to let you know about some creatures that really do go bump in the night. And uh, I've even got a little bit of spooky Halloween music that I'm going to lay underneath this. So this is the Republican Monster Mash. So up first, we've got Dracula, also known as Ted Cruz, because he's been dead for several thousand years and subsists solely on the blood of the innocent. And he murders people in secret because he's the Zodiac Killer. (laughs) (laughs) Confirmed by his own Twitter account. Uh... But then we also have the Swamp Thing, uh, Mitch McConnell, um, since turtles live in swamps, and Mitch McConnell is a, a is an anamorph turtle, and also he's the fucking swampiest politician in Washington, isn't he? Yeah. If, if, when you talk about draining the swamp, what you actually mean is firing Mitch McConnell. Uh. <laughs> well, the 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 mummy in this lineup for us is gonna gonna have to be uh, Rand Paul because he's wrapped in rolling papers and too stiff to function. And uh, I do truly mean that since he refused to vote for the Republican budget. (laughs) Because it included any taxes whatsoever because libertarians are the smartest politicians. Also, want to know how to find a racist weed smoker? Find a libertarian. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Frankenstein's monster is Donald J. J. Trump because... Just like when Frankenstein made the monster, he thought that by combining all this shit that was supposed to go well together, he'd have this wonderful human, the perfect human, but instead it's just a, it was a pile of disgusting shit uh, in a man's body that uh, clearly needs to be electrocuted. Um, and that, like, popul- populist veneer he has on hides the fact that he actually just doesn't believe any, he does not have any set of beliefs, and it's just gonna fuck the poor. Uh, <laughs> our, our ghost is going to go ahead and be uh, my favorite president. Well, second favorite. I like Nixon the most. But my favorite pre- my second favorite president, Junior, uh, because he's back. He's telling us how awful Donald Trump is, and he's still a war criminal. <laughs> yeah, the blood of like a million Iraqis still on his hands. Well, Actually, I mean, okay. Ch- Cheney is trying to rub that blood all over himself to make him survive for another 250 years because he is also a Dracula-type vampire creature that subsists solely on the blood of the innocent, so... <laughs> I want to I wanna say this, though, about fucking George, George W. coming back into politics. I saw some guy, Chris Hayes, like, tweeted, like, George Bush is still bad. And somebody was like, well, Donald Trump, though, actually led to murder in Charlottesville. And no matter how bad George W. Bush was, at least he didn't lead to outright murder. And it's like, what do you think war is, dude? <laughs> uh, <yeah. laughs> what? Ugh. Um, but I think one of the one of the biggest ones is the zombie, because um, all Republican policies have proven to be fucking horseshit, literal horseshit that have no relation to how they're supposedly justified, and yet they're still here. The brainless dead walking forward. We all, every, any economist will tell you supply-side economics is what happens if you, like, have dog diarrhea as an economic policy. <laughs> <laughs> and, and yet they still believe it. <laughs> well, it's okay, because the they have to push out these zombies because of their intense and terrible fear of the boogeyman, also known as taxes. <laughs> all Republicans fear one thing. It's hiding under their beds at the end of their pay stubs and uh, at the grocery store in the form of sales tax. And it's taxes. 
It's, and it's coming for your toothbrush. Let's put it that way. <laughs> but but I think we I think everybody listening to this show knows what the specter in this monster mash is, and, and that specter is the specter of communism. That's my specter noise. Spoopy sounds. Many months has come and gone since I wandered from my home In those Oklahoma hills where I was born Many a page of life has turned, many a lesson I have learned Well, I feel like in those hills I still belong Way down yonder in the Indian nation Ride my pony on the reservation In those Oklahoma hills where I was born now we're down yonder in the Indian nation The cowboy's life is my occupation In those Oklahoma hills where I was born I'm Adam Burnett And I'm Carl Roberts And this is Red Star Over Oklahoma We are a small political and news podcast Broadcasting about left Oklahoma and left politics in Oklahoma How you doing this week, Carl? Uh, doing just fine, doing good How about yourself, Adam? I'm living, I'm living It's about to be Halloween Best time of the year. It stormed last night. There was a tornado warning that came over Norman. Got to put my shoes on and watch the skies. It was very scary. I was excited. Uh, luckily, no major damage. There was some, some storm damage uh, <coughs> south of town, but nothing too bad. So, just had a fun fall storm, though. Yeah, we, we had a storm here, too. Uh, but turns out Oklahoma is the only place in the world that gets actually good storms. So, that, that kind of sucked. Kind oh man, just wet. I, yeah, I, 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 we, we, you and I have gone storm chasing a few times and seen some pretty cool clouds. Last night's clouds are really cool. Is get the the thing where you uh, be just pitch black outside because the clouds are so thick, and you get the big band of lightning, and you can just see that there's you know two or three miles of cloud just sitting there right above you. It's always very cool, very interesting. Uh, but speaking of you know massive colossal changes in places very quickly. Uh, Raqqa, the ISIS capital, has fallen into the hands of the SDF, the Syrian, uh, Syrian Kurdish forces, uh, this week. And I think, Carl, you have a lot you want to explain to us about, about uh, this uh, conflict. Yeah, so uh, we're, we're going to be talking about two different Kurds, but we're not there yet. So right now, two different sets of Kurds. The, the SDF, like you mentioned, the Syrian Democratic Forces, which came out of the PYG and PYJ which are the People's Protection Forces of the, the Kurdistan Workers' Party and to in be clear, Syria. And to be clear, this is all in Syria. Um, the Kurdish state, which, like you said, is, 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 can be divided into two states, actually, is a nation without a physical country, without borders. Syria, it, it, Kurdistan is within Syria. The two Kurdistans are within Syria. But they do not have Iraq. internet in Iraq. But yeah. um, they do not have in Turkey and Iran, technically. But yeah, 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 they do not have internationally recognized borders. Yeah, and so what what happened in 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 Syria um, is a really big deal because this is something that has been building up for a while. Uh, this combined, you know, revolutionary socialist group of people supported by essentially like NATO troops, except for Turkey. Very importantly, except for Turkey, uh, ousted ISIS out of its like last main big city, Raqqa. They, they still have control over uh, Deir Ezzur, which is a, a city of about 200,000 people, but that's a lot less important. And combined with 
They're pushed out of Mosul about three months ago in Iraq. They, they're basically on the run now. Um, Which is, I mean, just from a historical perspective, in the last few years, I mean, that's a major change from when, uh, I mean, for, there was a point where we were calling them Dash and IS because they had gotten so large that they were actually probably, they were looking to try and unify their government and make it a, a stable government. There was a point when they had enough of uh, Iraq and uh, Syria to, you know, they had strings of cities, they were working on infrastructure, they were working on establishing government, and now we're looking at them being completely overthrown, which is, you know, I think for those of us, I mean, you know, any side of the left, even though we're going to get into the politics of where support is in this war and how imperialism functions into it as well. But I think that anyone can say that, you know, seeing those images, I'm sure you saw the images uh, coming out of Raqqa of women who'd been wearing burqas, you know, full face coverings uh, demanded by the uh, religious fanatics within Daesh, ripping them off to expose their, their, their skin to the sun. I think those are, you know, things that as uh, people who believe in uh, equality and liberty and rights for all are absolutely, you know, great things to see. And we need to push out anyone who uses violence to support oppression. Yeah. And I mean, it, it really is, you know, when you look at the Syrian civil war, I think on, on the left, there, there's two positions, and there's the position of supporting uh, Bashar al-Assad and his government, which is, I think, just reprehensible. The, the Assad government, and, and this is including deaths from ISIS, has killed something like over 90% of the people that have died in the Syrian civil war. And, and there's this idea that because the Syrian democratic forces are getting support from the U.S., and I say support with air quotes because it's, for the most part, um, Air airstrikes and, and to some extent, you know, ground troops fighting ISIS, but that's less of a thing, and we don't really send them that many good weapons or anything. Um, you know, the, these are the Syrian Democratic Forces are fighting for a, a, a just democratic economy, and they're fighting against a fucking repressive dictator as well. But Bashar al-Assad is a repressive dictator, and they're, you know going toe to toe for the good stuff and and they're the ones who got who got ISIS out of Raqqa and when you when you also look at how the US has been supporting them like something like a thousand civilians died from US airstrikes in Raqqa right the, the US has not been trying to be good guys here they've just been trying to kill ISIS so i i want to put that out as the show's position clear on the table don't support Bashar al-Assad don't don't claim anything about being anti-imperialist because the US is is the world hegemon right now the the SDF is the good guy are, are the good guys in this conflict yeah but yeah and, and 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 we discussed some of this um but i mean it is so when you try and get a map of the ground of who is supporting who and why and where and everything else what you're really looking at is that you have displaced ethnic mi- not minorities but you have displaced and i'm going to use the word uh, the the word nations and what i mean by nation is a group of people who culturally identify with each other and so you have these different ethnic nations that have traditional cultural borders and traditional cultural ideas that are in conflict with each other because they are trying to be squeezed into borders recognized by the international community, but not by their national standards. And so I think that, you know, when you have this, this that, that, that is kind of the underlying problem in Syria is that you have all these ethnic groups and all these nations that are actually trying to say, well, we want to be able to rule ourselves. 
This group of Kurds wants to rule themselves. This group of Kurds wants to rule themselves. The general people in Syria want to rule themselves. It, it, it's reminiscent of many conflicts. Uh, we discussed World War One earlier. Uh, World War One is a great example of where you have this web of people who are not, you know, the Baltic states prior to World War One and Germany even prior to World War One is such a, you know, it, it, it is such a dangerous or not dangerous, but is is complicated. And a, a very heterogeneous mix of, of national identity and ethnic identity. Yes, yeah. exactly. Thank you for putting it smartly, more smartly yeah. there. <laughs> Though, I, and I, I want to, what I want to say about, about the SDF before we talk about the other important thing that's going on in uh, Kurdistan right now, uh, that's an important part of the story as well, um, is that the SDF seems to be the only <clears throat> multi-ethnic, multinational grouping of people in 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 the conflict region at the moment because you have opposing the Assad government is to some extent multi-ethnic multi multinational because it's always been good to minorities since the Assad family is from a religious minority that's like semi Shia um and I've heard from from a Syrian Christian that uh uh I I went to high school with actually that she was she was pro Assad insofar as she she was afraid for family members still living in Syria about the Sunni um, opposition. So so what we call like the the rebels or the moderate rebels or something are you know either Al Al Qaeda or fighting with Al Qaeda, and, and that's a form of this like okay these these people are all Sunni and defined by Sunni identity as their own grouping. And the SCF has Kurds are generally Sunni. Um, but they're also Christian and Shia to some extent, and yet they understand themselves as Kurds first and foremost in this conflict. Um, and, and they've been very good about bringing in Turkmens, uh, another one of the ethnic groups in the region. They've been very good about bringing in Arabs and making sure that in the democratic structures they're putting in place to run Rojava or Syrian Kurdistan, that they're, they're including everybody, they're including women, and they're, they're making sure that this works on a multi-ethnic level, which is a very important distinction from Iraqi Kurdistan, where there is now also shit afoot. Um, because the other big news in Kurdistan this week was that um, uh, the current president of Iraqi Kurdistan, because it's, it's a semi-autonomous region in the northeastern part of Iraq, uh, this president, Masoud Barza uh, Barzani, had an independence referendum for Kurdistan about a month ago, and the Iraqi government finally was like, you can fuck right off. And there's been some armed clashes between uh, the Peshmerga, which is a term for the Iraqi Kurd, uh, Kurdish military, and, and the Iraqi government, uh, specifically centering around the city of Kirkuk, which is also a multi-ethnic city and is at the heart of Iraqi oil production. Um, and, and it's very interesting to hear because some of the stuff coming out of Kirkuk is that now that the Kurdish, uh, the Iraqi Kurdish forces have been driven out, people are at reacting the same way that they reacted in Raqqa to the Syrian Kurds taking over Raqqa. They're going out on the street, they're celebrating, and so on. And it it's really ridiculous to to hear this because you know when you think like Kurdish national identity and like the push for a Kurdish nation or a Kurdish state is happening in these two places, Iraq and Syria, and, it, and is totally uh, bipolar. The, the, the images they have for society are entirely distinct, right? Because the, the Syrian democratic forces have this idea of like a multi-ethnic state, or really not a state. They are, they are pretty heavily influenced by anarchist thought. And then 
Iraqi Kurdistan is basically saying we want to have this city that's a central, this very multi-ethnic city that's a central part of Iraqi oil production because we want that tax base. We're heavily neoliberal. We actively fought alongside the U.S. military and coordinated with them in, in the invasion of Iraq in 2003. We actively like try to keep international volunteers from going to Syria and Kurdistan, right? And so you have this this stark distinction between the two armed Kurdish movements going on right now. That's really, really interesting and something that I think is hard for people to wrap their heads around, especially in the West, because you hear Kurdistan and you think that's one place. You hear Kurd, you think that's one group of people. And yet, you know, Kurdish society is massively, massively uh, cut down the middle, so to say, between, between these groups. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think that, that, you know, the, the, the key piece is that this is an evolving situation. It's going to continue to evolve. Um, the, one of the, you know, some of the things we said earlier about imperialism, I think that it is important to understand that while there is a place that the U.S. is embodying by giving these people weapons, they're also giving them means to conduct war. And that what really needs to happen is that they, these, these nations need to have long, complicated difficult conversations with each other to figure out how they can peaceably coexist. And every time we interject a gun or a bomb into those negotiations, they become more difficult. Uh, you know, there's a old kind of you know, image of, you know, being able to sit at a table with a rifle or sit at a table with a gun, you know, to, to negotiate at a, uh, you know, a draw, if you will. But that doesn't work. It makes people uh, distrustful, and it makes them um, more likely to not behave uh, rationally. It makes them more likely to <laughs> commit violence. And what these people need is not violence. What they need is a time of peace so that they can figure these problems out. And so I think that you know, while it is good, ISIS exists because there's a power vacuum there um, that has allowed these radicals to organize. There's a lot of guns there. There's a lot of bombs there. There's a lot of people with military training who no longer have militaries they can work for. You know, if you're a Kurd in a Kurdish group or you're a specific ethnic group and three quarters of you get blown up, you're going to take your guns and you're really pissed off and you're going to join ISIS. And that's a terrible, terrible, terrible decision. And you should not ever use violence against people. But at the same time, it's good that they're being eradicated. You can see where it comes from, how it has developed to this point. And as this evolves, we need to be respectful of the individual ethnic nations that are involved and let them have their seat at the table and their voice. And we need to take guns and bombs out as much as we can. And so while this is good, I think that as we eliminate ISIS, it gives there to be less incentive to fight. Every time we eliminate one of these radical groups that is predicated on violence, we <clears> at least have the ability to bring more people to the table. You know, ISIS is not going to ever sit at a table with a Kurd. They're not. They won't. They're enemies. Yeah, they won't. They're, they're, yeah. they're, they're religious enemies. And so they won't well, sit at a table with them. So we can't, it's, it's, it's just, there's no way to bring them to a table together. And I want to I say something too about, because you talked about imperialism, and I think it's, it's really important to note when we do talk about imperialism in this context, that like this whole claim that happens in Syria, wherein the U.S. supports Syrian Kurds, supports Rojava and the fight against ISIS, that makes Rojava not, you know, an arm of, of U.S. hegemony. I think the conflict between the ideas of what an independent Kurdistan should look like indicates, you know, that 
this criticism to some extent has has some truth. And like the the reason that there's this conflict in Iraq now between Iraqi Kurds and the Iraqi government is because the United States consistently pushed to arm Iraqi Kurds. Consistently, you know, fought for Iraqi Kurds. And I mean, Saddam Hussein did try to carry out a genocide against Iraqi Kurds in the 90s. We know that Operation Euphrates Field Shield was that, gassing Kurdish villages. But because we armed this group, because we did this, now that ISIS, as the enemy everybody agrees on that has to get fucking eradicated, is disappearing, what's happening in Iraq is that these fault lines and tensions that we have primed, that we have armed, are, are beginning to erupt again. And, it, and I read an interesting piece from a guy, uh, uh, someone who was involved in the reconstruction of Iraq after the invasion in 2003, and the whole time, everyone was saying, you know, when we're done fighting the Islamist extremists, what are we going to do about Kurdistan? Is there going to be a war here? And, and if we hadn't done what we did in terms of arming people, in terms of giving them high-quality guns because they agreed with our economic policy, in terms of giving them high-quality guns because they would let co companies like Halliburton use their natural resources to enrich themselves, um, we wouldn't be in this position where there might be another Iraqi civil war in the next six months, where we might go from the Syrian civil war to the Iraqi civil wars. And, and so I think you're totally right. And I, and I think it's also important to note that this is a problem of imperialism, is that it, it feeds on and generates this kind of, of, of violence in the liminal spaces of imperialism, that then it can turn into like a, a profit machine. Yeah. And so we... One of the most important things for us as Americans is to say, stop fucking giving people weapons. Number one, just don't ship more weapons out. It doesn't do any good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I think, you know, moving, moving past uh, Raqqa and the, uh, the Kurdish uh, the, the issue here, I think we're going to move on to another, uh, not, not stateside issue, this isn't a U.S. issue, but I think it's a really good place for us to talk about some of these things about the problems of profit motive. Uh, especially when it comes to things that um, engender violence or encompass what we as socialists would consider rights. Um, and so this week, uh, Theresa May, uh, Prime Minister for the UK, after, the, after promises she made following the Grenfell Fire, Grenfell Fire, about 80 people died in a housing complex built by the British government um, that did not have adequate fire suppression, adequate fire um like at whatever they're called fire doors and the uh, fire exits the fire escapes fire yeah, escapes yeah. yeah not fire exits fire escapes um and so after promising to make sure that public housing can be safe Theresa may this week went back and said there will be no government cash di divided or diverted to pay for these fire suppression systems um and so this you know, you, you, you know, you hear a lot of people, especially on the left, say that healthcare is a uh, right, not a privilege. Well, let me tell you, housing is a right and not a privilege. You yeah, and, and this is something uh, fucking jabroni. <laughs> it's so real. Like, if you don't think housing is a right, you are a jabroni. That's actually what it says in the dictionary. <laughs> Pretty sure. I'll have to go put that on Urban Dictionary. After we're done recording. Um, but this is—I mean, this is one of those things. You know, I think part of why we part of why we say healthcare is a right is because, as societies nowadays, I, really globally, we can afford to give everybody high quality healthcare without 
you know, this is not something that is a problem based on scarcity anymore. And that's also true of housing. Yeah. So not only, is it, also, a, not only is it a scarcity problem, but it's also like something necessary. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like we're not like saying. And I mean, I do think this is I do think everyone should be able to have champagne 24 seven. Right. But I would never say that, like, you have a right to like a champagne fountain in your bath. Right. Well, like major cosmetic surgery that that is incredibly labor intensive, but serves no, you know, necessary yeah. purpose to your body. Like, not everybody has a right. Like, I would never claim that everybody has a right to like their own lake mansion that you could fit like 20 families in or something. Mm -hmm. But everybody does have a right in the same way with healthcare, where it's like you have a right to not die of preventable diseases. You have a right to go see a doctor when you feel ill. You also have a right to have somewhere to sleep. You have a right to have somewhere to sleep that keeps you safe from the environment. You have a right to have somewhere to sleep that keeps you safe from the environment that is a place that's nice to live in, yeah. right? And, and, and the Tories in the UK, much like the Republicans, think that poor people are actually um, profit machines that don't, have like human agency or something and that putting in fire sprinklers would be some kind of onerous cost <laughs> yeah. like it, it boggles the mind like you have a right to a safe house well and i think that you know you can envision a play you know i always i always try and think of this from the most conservative argument against it and you can always think of a place where you know there's one house and there's three bedrooms and there's 20 people and you know you're like oh well you know we don't have enough room to put all these people here and we don't want to sleep on top of each other okay that's not the situation that we have in the u.s that's not the situation we have in the uk okay there are enough empty rooms there are enough beds but what happens is is that when you build when you build housing that you're saying okay we're going to give this housing to low-income people and we're going to help them out. We're going to help them and give them some nice housing. But you don't put fire suppression in them. You're just killing them. Like you're just marking them to be, it, 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 it's like putting them in a house full of asbestos or lead paint. I mean, you know, the, the, the U.S. government has done it in the inner city for decades, centuries yeah, maybe. Decades. But the exact same way, it's this rent model where they're saying, okay, well, the landowner, by their virtue of their ownership, has the right to collect rent because they have ownership i guess i get just like their, their 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 thing is ownership and you can make things say things about like oh well you know landlords have to you know have they have rights you know they have you know they have to keep up the house and make sure blah 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 okay okay well one they don't have to make the, sure the house is safe if the government doesn't make them so they won't uh for example grenfell fire and also not putting fire suppression in homes that the government builds well, yeah, the, and, other, and the, the other part of that is, is they can just hire somebody and pay someone else to do it. Like, I understand that that's still labor and that it's not necessarily labor, but like, you can also do it yourself. Like, if you're like, if you're saying like, oh, well, the landlord mows the lawn, like one, I pay rent. So it's not like they can't take part of that money and pay someone to mow the lawn. Two, it's not like I can't mow the lawn myself. But, like, I can't choose how the house was built. I can't choose what amenities are in it. You know, if they put asbestos in here or lead paint or they don't put fire suppression in a massive apartment complex that I live in, I can't put my own fire suppression in. I can't <clears throat> remove the asbestos. I can't chip away the lead paint. Well, and it's, a, I mean, I think the, the Grenfell fire is paradigmatic as a form of, uh, of murder, I actually, um, I was at a conference this weekend and I heard uh, the, the wonderful Paul Gilroy call the Grenfell fire social murder. 
because that's what it was. Because, I mean, it's a very extreme example of what can happen whenever you force people into housing conditions that are not humane, right? That are not able to sustain human life in an acceptable way that we should expect around the world, but especially in countries as rich as the United Kingdom or the United States. And it was essentially murder through neglect. Yeah. And, and, and that's what this is too. The Grenfell fire is a bit more complex because it wasn't just murder through neglect. It was also murder through profit motive because the fire was accelerated by the, the like, I don't, made of like gasoline uh, shields they put around the building to make it prettier for the landlords around so they could sell the homes for more money. But something like, I mean, and this is the exact same case. It would have cost them something like 5,000 pounds in total to have replaced that shielding that raised the property values around this building with fire retardant shielding. And, and they didn't do it. And it's the exact same thing. It's this, it's this idea that, oh, we can't afford this. Oh, we can't make this happen. Oh, this is too expensive. Oh, this would cut into my profit. Mm-hmm. The fundamental point that essentially says that these people's lives that are living in what they call council housing in the UK, what we call Section 8 housing, are not worth basic necessities to assure that they don't die from things that like if you if you buy a home in the US, if you're a, a home purchaser and you get told that, oh, no, this home doesn't have um fire stuff, you're going to say this is worthless. Yeah. You're going to say, oh, I, I get to pay less money for this now. Mm-hmm. And instead, what we're saying is because these people are having socially uh, requisitioned housing uh, given to them, that they don't have that basic right of not dying in a fucking fire. Yeah. Um, and, and it's something, if you look at more socialist models of housing, um, if you look at Vienna in the interwar period, uh, what's called Red Vienna, if you look at a Swedish housing today, if you look at housing in, say, um, uh, the German Democratic Republic, there was a capacity to, to have, and, and I mean, I want, I want everyone to remember that I said Sweden in this, right? Sweden is one of the richest fucking countries in the world. Sweden is, is, has a humming economy. Um, and they managed to, to make sure that everyone has access to a home that's high quality, that is safe, where the landlord which is quite often the state um, takes care of things like mowing the lawn, takes care of things like repairing it and keeping it up to date mm-hmm. because it's considered to be something that you have a right to. And, and this, the reason the Grenfell fire is paradigmatic is because they're saying you don't have a right to housing. Someone else has a right to profit. And what that means is that we are going to put your life quite literally on the altar of profit. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that you know, like I, I think I think I think you basically said it, but it's just it, 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 it there is a housing problem here, and it was solved by Frederick Ingalls in eighteen sixty on the housing question. <laughs> and I, it, it is just fascinating that we have gotten this far and uh, are still treating it this way. You know, like like we said at the beginning. Um, you know, I, 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 and, and, you know, there's lots of people who want to say, oh, you social, you'll just give everything to everybody for free. And like, yeah, eventually, but like, we can also start somewhere where we say, okay, do you need it to live? All right. Do we have enough of it for everybody? <laughs> okay. Let's figure out a way to make it, make sure yeah. you can get it. You still have to be a part of the economy. You, you know, you still have to contribute labor in like certain senses, but like, 
maybe not necessarily when we've all, you know, from each according to their ability to each according to their need. You know, someone without legs shouldn't necessarily have to do, you know, leg work <laughs> to have a doctor. They should be able to get a doctor because there's enough leg work already being done. Yeah. And it's, I mean, with housing too, it's, it's one of those things. And I think it's important to say it this way as well. Um, when you say, you know, it's not just, do we have enough of it? It's, do we have the resources to provide enough of it? And then where do we cut resources in, in, in case we are in a scarce situation, which we aren't. It's very important to say, especially in America, we are not in a scarce housing situation. There's By way, any stretch way, of the, way more empty houses than homeless people in the U.S. Yeah, I, I still remember like one of the defining moments of when I became a socialist consciously was when one of my aunts was forced to move out of her suburban home because of a financial crisis, right? That home is still empty. Or at least it was empty for multiple years, and she had to move into a smaller home, even though there was no demand for it because there are too many homes already, right? And but even even if the resource isn't is scarce, unlike housing, where the resource is unquestion, we are unquestionably in a non-scarce economy in the U.S. when it comes to housing. We can say maybe there's a problem here that there are something like five homes for every homeless person in America, and then we can't meet other requirements as well. You know. Like, we're clearly allocating resources inefficiently. Like, a, a, a good point of contact here, too, whenever it comes to this argument, um, the, uh, the woman who advises people at Booker T. Washington High School, when I went to high school there, at least, um, one time was on Donald Trump's boat, and she, she told um, a friend of mine to whom she is uh, his aunt that uh, she found Donald Trump incredibly tacky because he spent the whole time on his boat saying, this stuff isn't gold-plated. The whole boat, boat is solid gold, essentially, right? And this is the thing where it's like, there's a guy with a boat made of solid gold. Okay, we can stop having go boats that people have filled with solid gold and instead divert the resources that go into producing that into meeting needs that are scarce at times. Yeah. It, and, and this... It just, just makes me... Like, like <laughs> this is... Theresa May's party has come out and explicitly said, essentially, in their party program, no, we should focus on letting people have these boats made entirely of gold instead of letting poor people live in housing where they don't get sacri where they don't burn to death. Yeah. Yeah. And that's it, 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 it's all it's all very it's all very difficult, but I think that yeah, you've touched on the best things about it and just that I think that the way to look at this is that, you know, even if this, yeah, it's not scarce, but even if it was like, like, I just never understand conservatives who are like, oh, well, we can't, you know, allocate this non-scarce resource, like more efficiently, but it's like morally good that this rich person spends their money luxuriously, like Donald Trump having a gold boat or, you know, Mark Zuckerberg having 400 helicopters or whatever. It's just like, why does do does their like does their frivolousness on a massive scale outweigh the like non-frivolous efficient nature of like allocating resources? I just don't understand. Yeah, yeah, it just it, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense anymore. Uh, anyway, on to Oklahoma news for the week, and we have an interesting. This is going to be our spooky Halloween crime edition of uh. The Oklahoma section of the show. And wait, so, wait, wait, wait. On that point, I have a quick yeah. question. Have you ever had a friend in uh, 
God, what's the name of that magazine? Busted or whatever? Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Couple. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, man. That thing's great. Uh, the little, uh, you're talking about the, uh, the little uh, tabloid papers that they sell at gas stations that have it's everybody. It's like jailbirds or something. Yeah, it's jailbirds. Everybody who gets arrested. Yeah. You know, it's online, too. You ever want to check it out, yeah, yeah. listeners? Go check it out. It's jailbird.com. It's 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 pretty rough. Uh, but everyone, you know, they they normally have the funny ones on the front, and it's usually people making funny faces, and they're getting arrested. And sometimes it's creepy to see, you know, the guy with like the two domestic batteries charges, or you know, charges getting arrested. You know, his mugshot where he's sticking his tongue out and crossing his eyes, trying to be funny, because you're like, oh man, you just beat the shit out of your wife, didn't you? <laughs> you're you're actually evil. And then it's funny to see the the person who's like, well. Uh, Smoked Odie at the park at the wrong time. <laughs> uh, speaking, not a smoking Doty, but uh, a little, something a little, little stronger. Uh, so our first story uh, comes out of uh, Tulsa, where it appears this has been a two-year investigation by the Tulsa PD uh, that there has been a pizza delivery heroin system going on in uh, uh, Tulsa. So apparently, there's a phone number you can call. And um, at, you'd make a pizza order, and you'd call, and you'd talk to a dispatcher, quote-unquote, and you'd make a pizza order, and then they would send a driver out with your heroin. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's not delivery, it's addiction. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe a uh, better delivery, better pizza. Or be- better heroin, rather. You know, so many better different ways. Better delivery, better junk. <laughs> Papa Carlos Tato Gonzalez, who went down for the whole thing. <laughs> oh, oh, uh, the other, the other, okay, I mean, these gentlemen's names, uh, uh, the, the, the other gentlemen, uh, the, the two of, two of them are, the first one is, uh, Carlos Tato Gonzalez Rosales, 27. Guillermo Tono Samuel Inda Perez, also known as Antonio Maro Inda Ibarra. I want to know how you get two entirely separate names of three names. It's, it seems important. Because the next gentleman, Eder Sinaloa Cervantes Garcia, also known as Jose Ramon de Tron Torres, which, again, very, very interesting. So all of these gentlemen had been held on ice holds uh, in Tulsa County Jail before they were... Uh, so they didn't actually... So the way the investigation went, they didn't actually... Um, catch these guys. What they did is they got them on ice holds, talked to them, then got a search warrant, went to their house, and busted them. But like they said, they've been working on this for several years, so um, they this is you know something that they had been planning, and they probably used the ice holds because they didn't actually probably have enough evidence to get an arrest warrant, uh, which is interesting in the case of this. But um, it's 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 fascinating that this. Uh, Pretty uh, high-level drug trafficking going on in uh, Tulsa. Well, and it's also, I mean, this is something we talked about, and I don't want to, like, make it about this, but, and I think we're going to get into this a little bit more, but it's very, it's like, there's so much demand for heroin in Tulsa. There's so much demand for illegal smack. Like, what does that say about the, the, the legal opioid market, you know? Because there's enough demand that these people were comfortable having a phone line, right? And like using I, it, I mean, the, the, anyone, the, the numbers on this are crazy. I mean, they, they were moving product. Yeah, and like anybody, I mean, anybody who's bought marijuana illegally knows that 
and, and these are like small time weed dealers or something are just ridiculously sketchy about that. And these guys had a had like a dispatcher. Like that that implies a massive level of stuff going on here, you know? Yeah. And I, I, I just I think it's very interesting that that like like the specter haunting the story is that way too many people have access to opioids legally in in, in Tulsa in yeah. the nine one eight. Yeah. And and I think that, you know, the, the opioid crisis uh, is, in my opinion, a direct directly stems from the pharmaceutical industry. It, it yeah, is, yeah, it is exactly there. And I think that uh, you know one of the other things I think we're going to talk about a little bit more. And you're right um, in this next story. Uh, uh, but you know those opium users, they're so you know that addiction, especially when we don't allow for um, you know uh, socialized medicine where you can go to a rehab facility and get help or you know not be afraid of being you know put in jail for trying to get help with your addiction um you know it, 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 there there are ways to curb the problem that don't look like this that aren't as violent on their face you know we could you know help those people by giving them programs we could limit the amount of opium that's produced or the amount of opium that's distributed pharmaceutically and then on top of that it, you know these drug traffickers like yeah they're not good guys and the next story we have is about we have had a uh massive um crackdown in OKC of prostitutes over the last uh, uh about month and i've worked a lot with uh, prostitution in OKC and um, we're talking, uh, there have been five sex traffickers that were arrested, 14 adult prostitutes, 84 minors have been recovered across the U.S. This, in, this, in this crackdown uh, by the FBI and the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. And it is so crucially important in the same way that you have to understand that, like, there is an amount of labor that goes into these things. So, you know, someone who's making money as a drug seller, like those heroin dealers, they're doing that because it's great money, sure, but it's still hard work. And so it's not a work ethic problem with these guys. It's a money problem. If they could get, you know, not to say that they aren't making terrible decisions and aren't selling drugs and, you know, promoting drug usage and like doing bad things and hurting families and hurting human beings, but there are societal influences on that as well. And especially when you look at, prostitution and I've always had a soft well, a soft spark in my heart but some this has always been close to my heart because prostitutes are often more criminalized than the johns who pay which drives yeah. the demand they are often single mothers or women in terrible situations addicted to drugs or sexually abused or otherwise and they're often incredibly young. The average age of when I worked in OKC as uh, helping uh, uh, prostitutes get off the street, the average age of our street encounter was 15. And so, you know, when you talk about this, I mean, you know, look just at the arrests in Oklahoma City. We have five sex traffickers. That's five pimps. Those pimps, the, the, that charge is much less than a prostitution charge. It carries less weight in the criminal justice system. Now, so you have five pimps who get slaps on the wrist and you have 14 adult prostitutes who have been, I mean, who, no one wants, no one's proud to be a prostitute. No one's stoked about that. It is, they are always women in terrible situations. And so now you have 14 adult women who are already in terrible situations. Why don't you compound that by giving them a felony and then compound it by throwing them in jail and ruining any prospects for legitimate work they had. I do want to. I do want to say, like, like, I definitely, especially in a country like America, 
like the U.S. where prostitution is like so illegal and so heavily done, like I think a very large majority of of people engaged in prostitution don't want to do it. But I think there are, you know, there there are some people that do sex work that do want to be doing sex work. But I I think you're right that overwhelmingly it's not that's not the case. Yeah. And and then overwhelmingly as well, like how we treat it is so disgusting Mm -hmm. because like. I mean, it's and, and you're totally right in linking these two stories, linking the drug dealers with, with prostitutes in the sense that, generally speaking, people aren't going to do that kind of work because that kind of work is dangerous. That kind of work is legally dangerous, physically dangerous, you know, mentally dangerous because it's so stressful, the image in, et cetera, et cetera. The, the, the image in my head always is I have this image of a woman that, I, I, that we, we saw quite a bit of, and she would always wear high heels and a little skirt and a bra, and she would just stand on the corner but I can remember watching her in December in Oklahoma when it's just, you know, 30 mile an hour winds and it's 23 degrees and just watching her shiver. It's like, who, who wants that? Who wants that? I, I wouldn't work. I, I don't know how much you'd have to pay me to, to stand. I just to stand though, not even to, to, you know, have to have sex with strangers, but that's not a decision by someone who wants to be there. They're being forced if it's through addiction, if it's through violence, if it's through psychological trauma, they're not there willingly. They're not. And, and, and like no. you said, like you said, I think that there is a really nuanced argument to be made about sexual empowerment of women through the use of their bodies and uh, overturning patriarchal stereotypes by the sexual advancement of women. I think that that is a really interesting argument. And I think that and there are some places I think of, you know, Amsterdam, where there's really good ways for women to keep their money and to uh, to be sex workers without necessarily being um, as victimized. But in the U.S., where a a a, a, a charge for a John is thirty days in jail or a thousand dollar fine, and a prostitution charge is three years in jail. Yeah, it's not like that. You, you can't think about it like that. Yeah. Um, but once again, I mean. I think when it comes to our analysis of this, what we what we gotta as socialists say is look at the social structure in which the shit occurs, right? The shit would not be occurring if there were good, high quality paying jobs, if there were there was good, high quality education, if there was good, high quality free healthcare, food, housing, and all that stuff was provided for you. People would not be put in this in these situations and overwhelmingly. If, and if criminal justice wasn't wasn't structured as a system to prey on people for profit, as we've talked about at length yeah. several times, and we're about to get into a little bit more. But I mean, so much of this is that there is a profit motive at play here, and there are people who are making money off these people being arrested, and they 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 want to continue to make money. And the principle of all of it, Mister. Jeffrey Sessions, our attorney general, appointed by good Mr. Donald Trump, you know, I'll say, thank God that he hasn't been fired yet. He, he is so close, so close to the razor wire of Donald Trump you fired. He's made it this far, and he's given us what we wanted. He came to Oklahoma, and he talked to, uh, uh, he talked to our Oklahoma sheriffs. And let me tell you, there hasn't been a collection of white men in a room so eager to beat a black man since Powell <laughs> v. Alabama. Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't know. Maybe the Republican <laughs> convention in 2012. Maybe or, or 2008. Maybe. I mean, <laughs> but um, 
I mean, I, I want to. I, I, I let you get in, but I want to. I want to. I want to read some of these quotes from Mr. Sessions here in a minute after this conversation we've had about uh, sentencing and disparate sentencing uh, in both prostitution and drug abuse. But anyway, I mean, fucking the, the, like the Keebler elf of racism comes to our state and goes to talk to the fucking sheriffs, which are like the most. Oklahoma law enforcement is not famously progressive by anyone's stretch of the imagination, but Oklahoma sheriffs are are the least progressive of all of them. Uh, I'd say, like, I there was one time uh, Stephen Lastman, our, our Boston uh, reporter, and I were hanging out on the west side of Tulsa, and we came back to his car, and they had broken, the, the Tulsa sheriff had broken into our into his car and illegally searched it, and then they saw that we were white, and they were like, oh, guess there's not a crime going on here. It's just, sheriffs are... Just the perfect people for for Mister. I live in a tree that produces racism instead of cookies over here. <laughs> All right, so we're gonna we're gonna hit some of these quotes. Uh, I've got three queued up, and we're just gonna go through them. Um, so here's the first one: "Quote, despite the national surge in violent crime and the record number of drug deaths over the last two years, there is a move to even lighter sentences." Attorney General Jeff, I'm not gonna say Jeff. Attorney General Jeffrey Sessions told a gathering of the state sheriffs, we must be careful here. Federal prison population is down 15%. The average sentence is down 19%. Crime is up. So, okay, I want to note a couple things. One, a crime is only anything that the legislature calls a crime. I can go into the legislature and I can submit a bill that makes wearing black watches a crime. And if they voted in, it is now criminal to wear black watches. Yeah, it, it, it's, okay. Yeah, it's, it, it just, <laughs> so when you say crime is up, all you mean is we've identified more crime. Yeah, it's just like okay, guys, really. The and also in general, the like record number when, of drug deaths. Oh man, yeah. When 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 people say crime is up, right? When he says this, this is kind of not true. Like crime has been ticking up maybe a little bit in the past few years, but crime is down a lot since it like peaked in the eighties. Like, crime is not making a comeback or something, you know? Yeah, and I mean, you know, we, we, can, we can have a, a conversation about violent crime um, that, that, that doesn't perpetuate it and also doesn't deal with nonviolent offenses. I mean, you know, there, there, there's a difference between busting a drug dealer for selling drugs and busting a person who sells drugs who's, who shot somebody. You know what I mean? Or yeah, and there's somebody. also... There's a massive difference between like you shot someone and you're addicted to smack or you're a prostitute, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> those, those are not the same. And if you if you wanna if you wanna say there's an uptick in that kind of crime, like, you know, you're not hurting anybody except for yourself. Yeah, you so know. Then this next this next quote. I'm afraid we don't have a sentencing problem. We have a crime problem. If we want to bring down our prison population, then we should bring down crime. Okay, Carl, I'm going to need you to explain to me how cracking down on criminals reduces the prison population. Okay, I want to I wanna, I wanna say something very specific about this, right? Um, because in 2014, I don't know if you all remember this, uh, the NYPD was like, eh, Bill de Blasio, you don't like stop and frisk, so we're going to go on strike. And they went on strike, right? Almost immediately, crime rates massively dropped because no cops were busting people for smoking joints. That's basically what happened, right? 
And nothing bad, nothing bad happened other than that. So there's, I mean, you're, you're entirely correct in noticing this. You don't reduce crime rates by having more cops going around places because cops produce crime rates, right? Not in the sense that cops themselves produce crime, which is something I would say does happen at times, but in general, the more cops you have, the higher crime rate is going to be because you're identifying it more and you're identifying shit that doesn't need to be a crime. Like if there are more cops in Tulsa, then, then more teenagers are going to get caught smoking doty in the park. And then Jeff Sessions is going to come to Tulsa and say, too many teens are smoking doty in the park. But it's the exact same number of teens that were smoking doty in the park the whole time, you know? Here's a, and I also want to touch on this um, because this is important. Well, I guess we're going to get to it in a second. Never mind. Okay, so here's my next quote. Most people obey the law. They have no desire to inflict violence on their neighbors or traffic deadly drugs to suffering addicts. They want to be safe, Session said. Most crimes are committed by a relatively few number of criminals. Putting them behind bars makes us safer. Okay, I, there is a psychological portion of being like, okay, prisons aren't for rehabilitation. Once you commit a crime, you just have to be slammed in there and, and thrown away. And, and you're just, uh, d- 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 there is a portion of the population that are always criminals and will always be criminals in this. We just must uh, eradicate them and uh, make sure that we kill their children and don't let their genome to spread. Two, I, like, again, most people obey the law. Okay, find me a person who doesn't speed, doesn't, uh, you know, let their dog shit in yards, or, uh, like, not, you know, who didn't enjoy a beer before 21. You know what I mean? Like, most people obey the law. Okay, well, there's plenty of laws that are made that, like, people don't follow and don't enjoy. And, like, also, like, they have no desire to inflict violence on their neighbors. Okay, that's really weird, because, like, that's not, it's, like, not, like, I, like, a criminal just, like, knocks on their neighbor's door and, like, punches them in the face, right? Like, you get in a fight with your girlfriend, you might, you know, do, you know, people do terrible things in those contexts, but it's not like you just, like, are, you know, like, or, like, at a bar, you might get in a bar fight, but, like, inflict violence on their neighbors, like, who's just, like, murdering their neighbors? These aren't serial killers that they're trafficked, they're blowing up, these are prostitutes and, like, drug addicts, or traffic deadly yeah. drugs to suffering addicts. Isn't that a problem that has a source in the pharmaceutical industry and not the criminal problem? Also, also isn't that a problem insofar as we don't have universal health care and have criminalized drug usage so that people who do so suffering addicts can't go to the doctor and say, hey, I'm addicted to heroin without like running the risk of getting arrested and, and stuff like like you can't sit here and say that you can't say, oh, they're trafficking drugs to these addicts. If you don't also have a drug policy, that's not. Jeff Beauregard Sessions, like, War on Drugs Blitzkrieg edition. Yeah. Like, and then the, the, the most crimes are committed by a relatively <laughs> few number of criminals. Putting them behind bars makes us safer. So, so like, even if you ignore the weird psychology of that, um, to say that, like, okay, but didn't he just say that, like, the prison population is, like, down and they need to arrest more people? But, like, he's saying that if they can just get the baddies, then their prison populations will go down because if you get the baddies, they won't, like, get other people wrapped up in it? Like, I don't know. Like, are you saying that, like, there are real criminals that, like, influence other people to be criminals? Or, like, it just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. I just it doesn't make any sense. I just... <clears throat> it, it, it is just amazing because sometimes, you know, like, like, like I've said... You know, and like we've, I think we've said in these, uh, in this show a few times, but it's like, sometimes I worry that I'm on the wrong side of an argument. And then I really squeeze what someone like Jeffrey Sessions has to say. And I go, wait, shit, I'm not. 
I'm not on the wrong side. You are. You're the one being crazy and weird. And wrong. Yeah, well, and it's just... <laughs> it's mind-boggling that he comes here and does this. Especially after, and this is something that comes up in all these things, Oklahomans voted overwhelmingly to say, Hey, Jeff Sessions, your idea of law and order shit is trash. Get out of here. We don't need people thinking like this. That's what state questions 780 and 781 were and last perfect, year. Perfect. I'm so glad you mentioned those. That's what I wanted to mention earlier. So in Oklahoma, yeah, we had um, some, we, we passed some voter referendums last year to uh, lessen um, certain crimes. Okay. Um, to turn to turn a nonviolent drug drug offenses into misdemeanors. So, so, felonies so into misdemeanors. during this, um, during Mr. Sessions, following Mr. Sessions' speech, Ray McNair, the executive director of the Oklahoma Sheriffs Association, had some nice words to say about Representative Scott Biggs, who had stopped the referendum voted on and passed legislation from going into effect. Um, this is a quote from there. If it had not been for the efforts of Representative Scott Biggs this session, we would have had an additional 60 offenses changed from felonies to misdemeanors. Okay, so those were all low-level drug offenses. Yeah. So, and the, like, on top of this, like, it just... It's just a spin where they don't... They're not, they're not like, they're using words to de describe what they're doing. But, like, their actions are not matched up with it. It's just insane. Yeah, well, and I think um, Ryan Kiesel, the executive director of the ACLU of Oklahoma, put it best when he said, Oklahoma voters deserve better than to be treated like idiots. Yeah. Like, that's, the that's precisely the point. We know how we feel about this, you know? We, we made that very clear. We passed 780 and 781, both of them, by over 55%, right? Like, very convincingly. These are margins more than 10% that we pass these things. Yeah. Wait, what do we need? What do we need these fucking people for if they're going to sit here and say, oh, yeah, Oklahomans, you all didn't know what you were voting for. No, we did. This is not 52% to 48%. <laughs> yeah. And we're going to put this, uh, I'm, we're pulling a bunch of this from this Read Frontier uh, article. Um, and man, this article is awesome. It's really well done. It's by Clifton Attic. Um, and man, this is really, this is a really good article. We don't have time to go through all of it, but the quotes in here are really great. And the way he breaks down how this all just doesn't make any sense. It just doesn't. Um, when you look at the private prison, uh, industry in Oklahoma, it, this is, this is just kind of insane that it's like this, but, uh, I mean, I, I want to, I want to say yeah. one last thing about that with the private pr prison industry, like on some level, the reason people in the state of Oklahoma are like this, or rather representatives in the state of at the state capitol are like this, and the reason Jeff Sessions is like this is because those pigs that run private prisons are donating money to them. Yep. Follow the money. Follow yep. the money. Cui bono. Who benefits? All right. Conservative reading for the list for the week, and we're going to keep it with the spooky crime theme. And this is a story that at first will make you giggle. But then Carl and I are going to talk about it, and it's going to make you sad, which is kind of how this podcast works. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> the headline for our conservative reading list for this week is 91-hour erection prompts lawsuit from inmate claiming jail staff ignored his pain and doctor's guidance. Uh, an inmate, at, this is, comes from a Tulsa World article, but an inmate at the Pittsburgh County Jail um, took a pill that he was given by another inmate and received an erection for um, 
91 hours, which is a long time to have an erection. So whenever, uh, whenever it, you're watching a Cialis ad, uh, because old men in America just seem to have an impossibility to have boners, um, and they say, if you have an erection longer, lasting longer than four hours, you need to go to a hospital. This guy's erection was lasting 23 times longer than the four hours go to a fucking hospital. Yeah. Boner. And, and so, like I said, this is kind of something that, like, on its face sounds funny, and it's still kind of, you know, it's kind of a funny thing to think of. But I want to note two things on this. Number one, we've been talking a lot about medical issues. This is a guy who has a drug addiction problem, and instead of feeling confident to go to the medical staff at prison, which obviously didn't give a shit about him, as evidenced by the fact that they let him be in so much pain. Yeah, he was clearly right to not go to the medical staff after yeah. what happened. But, you know, he's dealing from withdrawal and, like, in that moment of bad decision-making, took a pill from a random inmate. Now, would you do that? No, that's a terrible, stupid decision. But you know what? If you were addicted to heroin, you might make a terrible, stupid decision. Well, and I don't want to call it—I I, I think it's important to not call it bad decision-making. And in a, in a medical—in a health problem situation, mm -hmm. yeah. right? Yeah, like addicts, addicts are not sitting there like, oh man, you know, should I take this heroin or stop being a heroin addict? That's not how that works. <laughs> the, the, yeah, the, the withdrawal symptoms include, you know, major hallucination, uh, you know, unbearable pain, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's essentially a pain, you know, it, it's, it's a pain blocker. It's a, you know, pain medicine. So whenever you stop taking it, you're in constant pain. And yeah, a lot of these people have underlying issues that they started taking opium for in the beginning with, you know, bad back, a bad knee, a bad elbow, whatever. Um, and so that's the one sad part. The other sad part is I did a little reading um, on these kind of problems. Apparently, um, these erections, these long-term erections are excruciating. Um, the, the blood pooling in the penis is uh, apparently one of the most painful symptoms you can go through. And um, after reading that, I felt a lot worse about this story well, and it because also, it's, yeah, it's kind of funny on its face, but it's just like, dude, this poor guy for also, like, four days sat in just excruciating pain. Yeah. And it, it doesn't just, it doesn't just, you know, hurt y your penis, which like very much it does, but like it starves other parts of your body of blood. Like, like you can get necrosis on, on your feet, on your back when you have an election an erection lasting this long because it, your blood basically stops flowing correctly yeah it, it, it's it's one of the most terrifying things that can happen to you yeah it's very greasy and oof. i i the longer i read and dwelt on that story i was just like man that sucks it just oh it's terrible and then you know like i said on the back of all this other stuff we've been talking about it just you know what more evidence do you want you know, for every every insult I've ever heard about a from about from a you know a capitalist saying you know communist advocate gulag. I mean, what the fuck do y'all advocate? Really? This? That, yeah. What is this? What is this shit? This uh, that is actual torture shit, right? Like like they're laughing at him. <clears throat> they literally laughed at him when he was like, "I am in serious medical distress." They sent him to a doctor. The doctor said expressly, "This guy has to go to a hospital. He needs to see a urologist." right now in Tulsa or he will be in like serious medical problems 
And then what they did is they kicked him out of the jail and said, good fucking luck. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's... they. What the hell is that? Yeah. If you're and upset the, about and, and, gulags in Russia from 100 years ago, <laughs> maybe you should take a little closer look at your state. And this is... I mean, this is a thing that happens all the time in Oklahoma. I think we, I think we already covered it not terribly long ago. Um, or, or maybe it was in one of the articles we read and we didn't talk about it, but there was the guy who, who was, like, left dead in a Tulsa County mm-hmm. jail cell for, like, five days. Like, yeah, it's just indicative of what, the entire system. If, if you're going to sit here and tell us, oh, there were gulags in Russia, and that's bad, like, how can you justify this? Yeah. How how can you mentally do the gymnastics necessary to say that oh jail in America is good? It's it's insane. It is it is. And on that note, I think that's going to be it for us for the week. Uh, you can check us out over on uh, Facebook Facebook dot com slash Red Star Over OK. Our Twitter account is the at Red Star Over OK. Subreddit's a little different. It's our Red Star Over Oklahoma. That's where we post. Uh, well, where Carl thanks to his wonderful social media <laughs> skills, posts all of our... Uh, uh, we put our episodes up there and we put the uh, reading lists and accompanying articles over there. If you want to check us out and listen, go over to SoundCloud, Red Star of Oklahoma, iTunes, the same thing. Hey, tell us your friends, rate and review on iTunes. If you have any comments, you can send them over to the uh, email account over at redstaroverok at gmail.com. And uh, that's about it for us for the week. Have a happy Halloween. Yeah, bye guys. Bye.